Good morning. I'm Ryan Jacobson. I get to be one of the pastors here at this church. I'd ask you to remain standing for just a moment as we pray together the prayer that we pray in each of our services here at Alamo Heights United Methodist Church. This prayer is called the Shema. It's taken from the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And this is a prayer that Jesus would have prayed at least twice every day and every time that the text was approached. And so in our discipleship to Jesus, we join him in this practice. You'll see some of us raise our pinkies as we pray this prayer. This is for us a reminder that there is enough power and grace and mercy and compassion in God's little finger to transform our hearts and our minds and our entire world. So please join me in praying this prayer. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Now remain standing and hear these words from the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a portion of the story of God told for the pe- uh, people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. <laughs> so during this Lenten season, we are journeying through portions of the book of Matthew. And the reason that we do this is that our friend and our teacher, Dr. Shia, who was here a few weeks ago, teaches us that each of the Gospels answers and asks a particular question on the fourfold journey of transformation. The question that we ask as we move through Matthew is the question of how we face change. Daryl explained last week that the initial audience that heard this message, that read this message from Matthew, was a community of Jesus followers who were Jewish and had just fled the temple destruction and the slaughtering of their priestly class. This was at a time that these Christ followers still considered themselves Jewish, and so this temple and this leadership of the priestly class was something that was vital to this community. For them, this temple was a place that represented where heaven touched the earth, where God reached through and transformed the world. This temple is the place of God's presence on this earth. And then the empire came and the temple fell. All of a sudden, a large portion of these Jewish people become refugees in a foreign land in a city called Antioch. They'd lost their friends and their family. They'd lost their possessions and their homes. They'd lost their leadership, and they had lost this temple, this place of devotion and atonement, sacrifice, and unwavering presence. For this people, this loss constituted a loss of identity. For these people are called the people of God, but how can they be so without this God's presence? According to Dr. Shia, in this city of Antioch, there arose four factions, four different voices that Daryl talked about last week that have 
different questions about how to approach this different world as they move forward. The first, boy, the first voice thought that the world might be over. With the fall of the temple and the death of all the priestly class, they thought there might not be anything left. The second voice is almost apathetic and confused. The second voice doesn't really know where to turn. They don't know who they belong to or where they belong, and they become almost paralyzed with indecision. The third voice says that this is the natural consequence of a laxity and religious observance. And going forward, this third voice stresses diligent obedience to the Mosaic law. But finally, we did have the fourth voice that Daryl talked about, and this was the voice of those that already knew Jesus. This voice says that this Messiah has already come, and the challenge for this community not, does not lie in who they are, but what's expected of them. This fourth voice begins to ask the question, what do we do now in the face of this new reality? We've said it a number of times in here, and we'll say it once more. Our church has been facing change for several years and will continue to face change for a little bit longer. Locally here, in less than a month, we will say goodbye to our senior pastor that's been here for 24 years. And for some of us, this is a very big change. And three months from now, we'll welcome a new senior pastor, Pastor Holly, to be our new rabbi, our shepherd, and our teacher. And on the global scale, though the conference happened six weeks ago and a, a plan was passed, we are still going to face questions about LGBTQ identity and inclusion in this church. Later this month, the, past, the plan that was passed, it was called the traditional plan, go, undergoes judicial review. And I don't know what will happen to judicial review, but what I do know is that the traditional plan has already been deemed unconstitutional twice. And whatever happens in this judicial review, these conversations will continue, likely through the 2020 General Conference. And as long as we're talking about this, we will continue to hear about and see headlines about the Methodist Church splitting or schisming. And we, some of us, are still here gathering together in the midst of all the change. And so, like this early community, we turn to the story of Jesus as told from the voice of Matthew to find out how we, too, face change. Jesus, in this passage, says, I have come not to abolish but to fulfill. It seems to me that, as it usually does, we should start with some definitions. The first definition is pretty easy. It's this word, abolish. In the Greek, the word is kataleo. It could be translated as to abrogate or to nullify. And scholar Douglas Hare says that this word, when used in reference to the law and the prophets, means to tear down or to render null and void. Dr. Hare goes on, though, to say that this understanding of this passage doesn't hinge so much on this word abolish, but on the word fulfill. The Greek for this word fulfill is pleru. This is a popular word for the New Testament writers. It's used 86 times altogether, and Matthew himself uses it 16 times. But in all of these instances, not all of them, but in most of these instances, these, this word is translated differently. For Matthew, the most common usage is in reference to the fulfillment of a messianic pro uh, prophecy, but that doesn't seem to be appropriate here. This word at its most basic means to fill up. And it's been translated in different places as to pervade, to possess fully, to influence, or even to consummate. 
Scholar Eugene Boring elucidates on this word, saying that it cannot be interpreted as simply to do or to obey as though Jesus performs everything required of the law. It can't be translated as simply interpreted as though what Jesus offers is just a new interpretation. And it can't be uh, understood as simply to sum up because Jesus does more than just a summary. These scholars recommend that we find some context in the verse to find the true meaning of this word fulfill. And so maybe the first question that we should have asked was, what is the law and the prophets exactly? The portion of the Shema that we say that comes from Deuteronomy comes from the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy. And if you read in Deuteronomy 6 further, you come to a passage that says this. When your children ask you in the time to come, what is the meaning of the decrees and the statutes and the ordinances that the Lord our God has commanded you, then you shall say to your children, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord displayed before our eyes great and awesome signs and wonders against Egypt, against Pharaoh and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land that he promised on oath to our ancestors. Then the Lord commanded us, to observe these laws, to fear the Lord our God for our lasting good, so as to keep us alive. So when your children ask you what is this law for, your response is, we were once slaves in Egypt and God set us free. The law then, according to this in Deuteronomy, is not just a collection of laws. It's not the full list of the 613 commandments we find in the five books of Moses. It's not simply the Ten Commandments, and it's not even the two commandments that we recite in the Shema. Instead, the law itself is Torah itself, and Torah is a narrative. Torah is a story of a people that endured 400 years of slavery to an empire, a story of people that lost themselves and their identity in this slavery. This story says that God hears the cry of these oppressed people, these strangers in a strange land, these victims of empire, and when God hears this cry, he sets out to redeem them with power and with wonder. He guides them out of this land of oppression and towards a land of promise, but first he takes them through a wilderness because as he knows, he can take the people out of the empire, but it takes a little bit more to get the empire out of people. And so in this story, these laws serve this function. These laws and ordinances and statues, statutes that are held within the narrative help the identity establish community and the identity and purpose. As this passage from Deuteronomy 6 tells us, these laws were given that this people might live. The laws were given that they might live abundantly. These are not laws that are meant to just restrict and dampen and bind, but rather these laws and rules taught a people how to be free. The purpose of Torah and the prophets' interpretations of Torah, then, is to teach a people a certain type of righteousness. This Torah transcended the laws that the empire had placed on people. It transcended the geographical boundaries of these people, and it transcended even who these people thought themselves to be. This righteousness that we find in Torah taught this people that they are actually able to be free and live abundantly. And it's this Torah, it's this narrative that Jesus says that he's come not to abolish, but to fulfill. 
So the Torah testifies to God's will and God's work in creation and in human history. And in our passage today, fulfill then means to confirm and to continue that will and that work. This means, according to Dr. Boring, that this affirmation being fulfilled by the Christ does not mean a mere repetition or continuation of the original law in the sense of a set of rules. Fulfillment here means transcendence as well. Fulfillment means to continue to retell and reenact this story, this story of salvation and freedom within the context of the community that hears it. If I were to give you homework today, it would probably be this. Go home and read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. As you read through it, the rest of chapter 5 has to do with six laws that are found within the pages of Torah. And as Jesus talks about each of these six laws, he transcends that which the law actually says. In some cases, he actually strengthens what the Torah commands. But in other cases, he takes what Torah commands and completely alters it and completely changes it. And as he moves through in chapters 6 and 7, Jesus continues to buck the conventional wisdom of the day. Jesus unveils a deeper, more generative truth than what people think they know. Through this, prayer and forgiveness and generosity and peacemaking become the tools by which we learn how to live righteously. Now remember that there were other voices that this community heard. One of those voices, that third voice, was saying almost the exact opposite of what Jesus tells us in this passage. That third voice that we mentioned was saying that all of the chaos and the destruction and the death was because we broke the rules. We broke the rules and now we're paying for it. And this voice makes the claim that if only we follow the rules better, we can get back to the way things were. That if we try harder, we can maintain the status quo. If we tighten restrictions and cleanse ourselves of the impure, then we will be rewarded. And if we make sure that our neighbor is following the rules as well, then perhaps the golden age will return. This voice says that it is the laws that set us free, rather than teach us how to be free. This voice makes the claim that this rule abiding is the righteousness that will actually save us. For Matthew, this third restrictive voice is portrayed by the Pharisees. And it's this voice that Jesus over and over again throughout the gospel confronts and transcends. The Pharisees are mentioned roughly 29 times, not roughly, it is, 29 times in the gospel of Matthew. And in almost every instant that Jesus encounters the Pharisees, the Pharisees are getting angry because Jesus has seemed to break or nullify or abolish some law. But in each of these instances, Jesus also transcends that law. He calls the Pharisees and he calls his own followers to move beyond that which the law actually requires to that which the law intends. Tom Long calls this moving beyond the literal requirements of the law and into the heart of it. For Jesus, picking grain to eat on the Sabbath is against the law, but it gives life. It maintains the purpose and the spirit of Torah. Eating with tax collectors and sinners may be against the rule, but it gives life. Throughout the Christian scriptures, throughout these gospels, 
We're given example after example of Jesus and the community of God moving beyond the prescription of the laws and giving life to those that need this good news. Food that was once deemed unkosher becomes permitted. According to Paul, even food that's sacrificed to idols becomes permitted, making those that eat this unkosher food and those that sacrifice this food to idols suddenly okay to eat with. Leviticus 21 has an entire list of people with various deformities, and these deformities cause these people not to be allowed within the presence of God. And through the writings of Luke and Acts, Luke into Acts, Jesus and his disciples visit and teach and baptize a person with every single one of these deformities, welcoming them them into the community of God. This includes a dwarf named Zacchaeus and a eunuch from Ethiopia found on the side of the road. Over and over again, Jesus and his followers transcend the law, but maintain that which the law was intended for, this life-giving righteousness. One of our favorite Hebrew Scripture scholars here at this church is Walter Brueggemann. Brueggemann says that according to the Scriptures, righteousness should be defined as living in right relationship with our neighbor and with our land. Righteousness, then, is not an adherence to some set of rules, whether these rules are prescribed or not, by God or not. This new righteousness realizes that the law is not what frees us, but teaches us to be free. This righteousness lives with honor and respect for neighbor and for land, and therefore for the God as well. This is the life-giving righteousness that exceeds the rule-abiding righteousness of the Pharisees. This is the message that those early Christians needed to hear as the world around them was changing. This is the message that tells that early Christian community that as they begin to reshape their life of faith, it's not the letter of the law that is the concern but the spirit of Torah. It's the retelling of the story of salvation and freedom in their own community. It's discerning within the Torah the true intent, the true heart of this law. This message is one that requires only that which gives life. Surpass the righteousness of those who would tell you that all you need to do is follow the rules better. Instead, let justice and mercy And love guide you into that which is truly righteous. Remember that you were once the slave. You were the unfed. You were the naked. You were the stranger. You were the refugee. You were the one that cried out, and God heard that cry. And so as you go forth, free the unslave and feed the unfed, clothe the naked, Welcome the, re- the refugee, invite the stranger, and listen yourself for one that's crying out. Much like the temple, this communion table is one of the places in which we are made aware of heaven and earth touching. This table is where the divine touches us and transforms our world. And so let us join together at this table. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty. Creator of heaven and earth, you form us in your image. 
and breathe into us the breath of life. When we turn away and our love and our trust fail, your love remains steadfast. You deliver us from captivity. You make covenant to be our God. And you speak to us through these prophets. And so with your people on earth and all the company of heaven, we praise your name and join in their unending hymn. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In the highest. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, Jesus took bread, gave thanks to you, broke the bread, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this, eat, this is my body given for you. And as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup, he gave thanks to you, And he gave it to his disciples and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this, and as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. The Christ has died The Christ has risen. The Christ will come again. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and the blood of Christ that we may be for this world the body of Christ, redeemed by his love. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. And now as children of God, let us pray as Jesus taught us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Save us in the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. Because.